you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Alrighty, Eddie. Father God, we praise you. We thank you for just having been with us all the days of our lives and even when we didn't know it and taking care of us and meeting our needs and and raising us up to be uh, children that are her, a little more are grown up towards you and we we thank you lord jesus that one day you'll pick us up and uh it'll be soon i hope and uh, we look forward to that and holy spirit we thank you that uh you you're here where i we know you're here but uh that you manifest yourself tonight in christ's name amen 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 okay so Tonight we get into Hebrews chapter 9, and this is the way into the holiest of all, which should probably just, well, that's kind of like what we're talking about throughout the entire book of Hebrews, but I chose it as the title of this message just because of where we're at in this section of Hebrews. So, uh, remember we were uh, in Exodus 31 uh, about the, the building of the tabernacle, and, and we were talking about the... Uh, anointing of the Holy Spirit upon and the creativity involved in crafting this tent that just the understanding of ink on paper or or you know carved grooves in stone didn't give complete shape there were great directions but the ultimate shape was done by the Spirit of God on the workmen as they went in to actually craft these things how to put these things together that God had described to Moses and written them down so um, the Lord told Moses, this is Exodus 31, verses 2 through 6, See, I have called by name Bazalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and carving wood, and to work every craft. Now, that's pretty neat. So, um, one of the applications that I've always taken away from this, you know, the interpretation is that God's anointed them to do this particular work. But the application of this, and you also see this in Daniel and his friends in, in Babylon, is God giving his children understanding to actually be effective and efficient and impact their sphere of influence for the better. Right? So if you're struggling and... and if you're in a job where there's no struggle of understanding, you need to pray for a challenge. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> because it's when the challenge comes that, that we, we grow. You know, it's like if you worked out without gravity, you know, if there's no resistance, your muscles aren't going to, you know, you're not going to do anything. If, if, um, if you always read at a second grade level, your vocabulary is not going to get much past the second grade level, right? So when when you are in an endeavor and and you're seeking to grow, you know, God says that that you know I would that you would be in health and prosper even as your soul prospers. And and a soul prospering is a soul growing, a soul um, you know just becoming rich by the touch of God, right? I mean, if you think about David, David starts out as a shepherd. And he's a musician, then he's a warrior, then he's a war leader, and then he's a king, and then he's an architect, and then, I mean, you know, all these, 
all these different facets of life that expand in David's life in his relationship with God, right? So here are these men, God's touched them, and they, and they get it. They get the Spirit of God fills them, and then with the Spirit of God, ability, intelligence, knowledge, and all craftsmanship. You now, how, how do I work this? How do I get it done? God can be involved in the daily. God, as a matter of fact, absolutely wants to be involved in the daily. And uh, I, I've said frequently that I've, I've, I've worked uh, most of my lifetime in jobs I was unqualified for. <laughs> this one in particular. And, uh, but God is faithful. And He can grow us. So here, here are these two men, Basileo, and then verse 6, And behold, I've appointed with him Ohaliah, the son of Ahishamach, see, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So, here's another takeaway. That with what God commands, He gives ability to, to carry out. Now, it may take Him millennia to, to make that permanent. <laughs> okay? So, for instance, the Ten Commandments. That's a commandment. The ability to actually carry that out wasn't innate until the day of Pentecost. Parts of that were available, you know, but, I mean, every, everyone's falling short, right? Everyone's falling short of the glory. Everyone's sin falling short of the glory of God. So, okay, here's the insight. So, remember, we were talking about this tent, the tabernacle, being a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So the tent is a shadow of heavenly things. This is Hebrews 8.5, right? So, Basileel, Betzalel. And so I, I take it, they, they didn't specify in, in, the, uh, in the lexicons what the, what the um, particle was or whatever that, that made the end, but these were, this was the only part of that name that was left, you know, the bay. <laughs> and, and that's in, and cell is shadow, and L is... The Almighty, okay? It's the, it's the word for God. And so, Bazalel, his name means in the shadow of God. So the first guy who's, who's appointed to, to craft this tent that's a shadow is a man whose name means in the shadow, in other words, in the protection of God. Bazalel's in the shadow of God, <laughs> okay? Right? This is cool. This thing will be over so quickly. You'll be like, is he done? All right. So now... Uh, we'll be surprised for sure. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, Heliah. Oh, hell is tent. And Ab is father. Like Abba. Father. Right? So his name means tent of the father. So the two guys that are primary in building the shadow copy of heavenly things... One means in the shadow of God, the other one means in the tent of his Father. That's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and God, and God, God, before they were born, he... he yeah, yeah, I've yeah. called him by name, he yeah. says. God says, I've called awesome. him by name. You awesome. see how he leaves his fingerprints in the text? Thank you, Lord. You know, I mean, the deeper you look, the cooler it gets. So, <clears throat> that's Basileon Ohalab. Well, then we were talking about... These 70, where God took the Spirit from Moses and, and put it upon the 70. And, and when it went on the 70, they began to prophesy, but two guys missed the meeting. You know, they weren't there. And, and this is Numbers 11, verse 26. Now, two men remained in the camp. 
One named Eldad and the other one named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. So, we think we're so modern, you know? There's a, there's a meeting that's supposed to be at the tent, and there's a list of everyone who's supposed to attend. You know, and, and we think that having a meeting with registration, you go to the registration desk, and someone checks your name off, or anything else, well, that's, that's modern logistics. But look at this, this is, this is in numbers, right? And, and so these guys were supposed to be there, but they didn't get there. And you know what? The Spirit rested on them anyway. They're not, they're supposed to be with the group, but they're not with the in-group. Now, talking about shadows, you start seeing some shadows of the grafting in of the Gentiles in this. These two guys that, well, okay, they're not Gentiles, they're Jewish, you know. They're supposed to be in that, but they're not. They're outside. They're outside. And yet the Spirit of God still comes on him, right? <clears throat> and they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, from his youth said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. They're out of order. I, I, I've been in, in several churches where, you know, with all degree of seriousness, and I understand the degree of seriousness, but still... With all the degree of seriousness, the senior leadership says, you know, we don't believe in parking lot prophecies in this church. You know, and by that, that means that, you know, if you're out in the parking lot and some fellow believer comes up to you and says, hey, I have a word for you. Oh, no, 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 no. That, that, You've you got to vet that thing. Don't, you know, we don't do parking lot prophecy in this church. We're decent and in order. These guys are in the parking lot. What are they doing? They're prophesying. Why? Because the Spirit of God came on them. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. Hey! How are you all doing? Hi, guys. So, um, so, so they're out there, right? And then Moses says to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Remember, at, at this time, basically Moses is the one who's anointed. You know, you have, it's not, he's not the only one. Obviously, we've, we've, we've seen Bazaliel and Holiab, and, and the Spirit of God touched them. And, and, you know, Aaron's anointed. We know Miriam prophesied. So, but I mean, he's the primary, right? Now, all of a sudden, these people are prophesying, and Joshua's like, "Those guys aren't in the meeting. Make them stop." And Moses, is, are you concerned for my place, my authority, my specialness? Are you jealous for my sake? Like this is going to put me out? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Remember what uh, Peter said on the day of Pentecost, you know, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel, you know, that your sons and daughters shall prophesy. The Spirit of God came and, and, and on the day of Pentecost for the uh, inward anointing that was the sealing, the permanent habitation of the Holy Spirit. Well, Eldad and Medad. That's not Spanish for, you know, El dad, me dad. No, it's not. <laughs> no, that's not what that is. This is Hebrew, right? So, El dad and me dad. Well, we've seen this, uh, this word El before, right? The Almighty. It literally means strength, mighty. And it's the, it's the word used, you know, for God. And even when, when it's, you know, little g in the Bible, God's L. That's, that's, but it, it, it has reference to God's strength, the Almighty, right? That's L. And, and um, Dode, Dode, we see this in David's name, right? 
Dod means to love. To love. So Eldad, God has loved. God has loved. Here he is out in the parking lot, right? <laughs> and the Spirit of God comes on him, he prophesies. His name is God has loved. Me, Dad. Me, Dad means beloved or friend. That's, that's Unger's definition. And then Hitchcock's Dictionary of Bible Names has it defined as he that measures water of love. I, I think that's really cool too, but I'll just take these two for right now. God is loved, right? God has loved the beloved. You know those verses where, uh, you know, that the one that wasn't beloved now is beloved? And so here, these two men and get the Spirit of God. So this is the neat thing about the Bible, is that anytime you're on a dig, you're digging for gold, right? You're looking for something that, you know, something that, that God wants to show you. You're, you're communing with the Father. And, and maybe you're focused on one particular thing, and I've, I've always likened it to mining, you know? And so you're digging. You're digging through Scripture, and you're trying to find that jewel you're chasing down. So you're all of a sudden, you're digging, and you're throwing, and, and the thing of it is, is that every shovelful you're throwing over your shoulder to find the jewel is full of gold. Every name, every instance, every word, and the more you look at it, the more you understand that it's the Holy Spirit Right? That moved men of God to write that scripture. It's not an invention of human brain. It is so God ordained, so intertwined, you know, from, from Hebrews to Numbers. And here you have you have these events that these men who were outside, not in the big meeting, have the Spirit of God upon them, they prophesy, and their names mean God has loved the beloved. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? I just thought it was great. I thought that was worth pausing and looking back over our shoulder at Hebrews 8, 5, 4, right? Okay? So, onward. Here we go. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 4. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and, earthly places of, and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Okay? So, this is a great general description. Now, the writer of Hebrews, and we'll read it, uh, he'll, he'll, he writes, I can't get into this at length right now, <laughs> but I didn't write Hebrews. So, I'm going to get somewhat at length in this. That was a joke. Not really. <clears throat> so, so, here's an illustration of, of the tabernacle. You have, you have the, uh, the courtyard, and the temple system is the outer court, right? Then you have the holy place. So, you have the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the, the altar of incense, the golden altar of incense. And then you have the Holy of Holies. Okay? So last night we're having this conversation about civilizations. And, and so the discussion was, well, what makes one civilization better than the other? And then, then what gives rise to civilizations? And we should start talking about that. Well, what was the perfect civilization? And anyhow, Joel, Joel, um, Joel Casanova had been listening to the Bible Project podcast or whatever. And, and so he... Uh, 
because we went all the way back to Genesis. Remember we talked about pattern being prophecy? Right? And that God, God repeats these patterns. I mean, in, in His Word, He repeats it in creation to the fractals. You see it in, a, in, in crystal forms and minerals, you know? This, this repetition of figures and forms that give beauty and symmetry and all this kind of stuff. This is the one that I hadn't considered. And I, this, this really blessed me last night, so I wanted to share it if I could find it. So in Genesis... Genesis 1, you know, God calls all this life, right? You know, sets, sets up dry land, divides the waters, divides the, the you know, divides the heavens, gets all that stuff. All right, and we get into, uh, <clears throat> so he makes the world, right? And has all this, all this life, all these animals, all this stuff going on. And it says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. The garden is the garden of Eden. Eden isn't the garden. Eden is where the garden is. So the garden is a subset of Eden. And Eden is a subset of the world. What do you have? Well, what happened? Okay. Okay? All right. All right. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground God made there to grow every tree that was pleasant. And, and so then he describes the river and the whole... So what happens in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve... Sin, right? Well, before they sin, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have access to the tree of life. They have access to... Um, Every tree to eat freely, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they fellowship with God in the garden. Outside of the garden was Eden. Um, there was gold there, and the gold was good, it says. Anyhow, um, there's Eden, and outside of Eden is the world. Outer court, holy place, holy of holies. He just bangs the drum over and over and over and over. He has the same structure in, um, you know, let us make man in our own image, right? And then in Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. What part of man is that? Body. That's his body, outer court. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's the spirit of God animating, creating the spirit of man in man. That's his spirit, that's his inner man, holy of holies. And man became a living soul. That's a soul, that's the holy place. And this pattern repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. But this, this world, Eden and, and, and garden, I've never seen, I just never, never considered that structure before right. until Joel brought it up last night and I thought, well, look at God go. It was right there in the beginning. But what was God's intent? To be with His family, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Husband and wife, one body. And be in the garden, living with God. And they sinned. What happened when they sinned? They, they got kicked out of the garden. They got kicked out, right? And then, but God did something right after that too. I mean, He kicked them out, but He kept them out. How did He keep them out? He put two angels at the gates and closed the doors. Uh, the gates. And he put 
He put a, a, a fiery sword cherubim. Well, let's, let's read it. A fiery sword. Yeah. Yes. Um, the cherubs, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so he drove... He drove the man, he, so he, this is uh, Genesis 3.24. So he drove out the man, and he placed in the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubim. That's not one, that's cherubim. Now we know from further revelation of Scripture that there are four still in heaven. <laughs> the, the fifth one got the boot. Okay. Um, okay. And what did they do? And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So why do you have cherubim with one sword and it's going every direction? Well, I don't know. Why do you have living creatures with eyeballs on wheels that go anywhere that they just stand there with six wings? I mean, it's, you know, they're spirit beings. <laughs> they're pretty awesome. You know, you have, you have the... Uh, I, anyhow, I'm not going to get into all that, but... What kept them from getting to the tree of life? Cherubim. This veil, what is on this veil? Woven in this veil, this veil that the high priest could only cross one time a year on pain of death and not without blood. On that veil are cherubim. Where is the veil again? Right the veil. Right? This, is, this is the gate, this is the door, this is the veil. The veil is, separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And is it the Ark of the Covenant? And the Ark of the Covenant is behind the veil. And there are cherubim on the mercy seat. So again, you know, he, what's he saying? You can't go here. You're out. It's because of our sin now that we can. Because of our sin. So, now, I had great plans, you know. There was going to be pop-up stuff here for each section. Okay? But there's not. <laughs> I'll probably say this again. In the Christian life, this, this brazen altar and the laver is where... Um, up until probably about 40 years ago, most of Christendom stayed. And by most of Christendom, I mean the Evangelical, Baptist, um, dis Dispensationalist, and uh, um, Cessationist, well, Reformed theology view of Christianity. They had predominance until Pentecostalism is like, you know, they're... There are more charismaniacs than there are Catholics in the planet now, but if you don't double count the Catholic charismaniac. Yeah. Okay? So, anyhow, I digress. Most of Christianity stays here. Have you come to the cross? Have you gotten baptized? Have you been baptized? Come to the cross. Come to the cross. Have you been baptized? Oh, you've come to the cross and been baptized. Did you sin? Come to the cross. And, and so much of the Christian life is spent right there in the outer court of the brazen altar, of the death of Jesus Christ, the entire Roman Catholic religion, if you're not worshiping the, the, uh, 
you know, the idol of a woman, the queen of heaven, you're carrying a dead Jesus around your neck. Still on the crucifix. I remember when uh, my, my senior, my high school senior year, and uh, we, we sang in several cathedrals, and I remember turning to one of my friends and I said, if I see one more crucifix, I'm going to puke. He's off. He's not in the grave and he's not on the cross. He's resurrected. Amen? That's right. And that's not a, a, I'm not denigrating what Christ did on the cross, but if this is where we stay, we've missed the point. Now, much of the Pentecostal, much of the charismatic expression of faith, much of the contemporary services of evangelical Christianity, this is where they stay. They stay in the holy place. Let's have 85 hours a day prayer. Let's have 24-7 worship service. Let's have, you know, let's have words of prophecy ad infinitum because if there's no prophecy, there's no God. And, and okay? But, but this is where it's all at, you know? Praise and worship, praise and worship, and this is all we should do. I, I mean, now this comes in, comes in waves and fads, I, but I've been around folks, so it's just like, you know, we, we just need to, we need to have a praise movement. And then um, people would, would um, uh, essentially forsake their fellowships for developing the logistic of hosting and, and carrying on uh, continual singing and praying to God. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that if that's as far as you go, the altar of incense, if that's as far as you go, the love feast, the communion meal of the table of showbread, if that's as far as you go is, hey, let's get into all the gifts and let's have laying on of hands and let's have healings and tongues and prophecy. All that's good, but if that's all you're doing, you missed the point. Because where God is calling us, when, when, when he said, when Jesus said, it is finished, this thing, the temple, everything you learn about the tabernacle, if you want to understand the temple, you've got to study the tabernacle. So the temple is the tabernacle amplified. Okay? Which means that, which means, even though there's more about the tabernacle, I think, verse for verse, but, you know, the tabernacle says it like this, and then the temple says it like this. I mean, it's amplified, right? <laughs> it's it's, so that veil was a lot larger and it ripped from top to bottom. Open. Okay? So we are all of this. We are spirit, soul, and body. And where God fixed our problem, where God came to live, was right here in our spirit, in that innermost part of man, in the holy of holies of man, is where God abides in you. And, but we're to live a rent veil life. And that veil, that veil was the flesh of Jesus Christ, sacrificed on the cross. This is the you know, the, the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the spirit war against each other. And so if we, if we let the dead man be dead and the spirit win, then we live a rent veil life where the influence and the impact of our relationship with the Heavenly Father, 
That's what it's about, is us actually being with our Father, being identified with the one who created us, understanding who we really are. Love, joy, peace, righteousness, holiness, wholeness, generous, good, kind, merciful, forgiving. All of that we learn through relation of actually being in the Holy of Holies with our Father and being stamped by His character so that when we walk out of these other places, we carry this image out here into the outer court, out there into the camp. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. So God, God just keeps... But the writer of Hebrews isn't there yet. We're still in this place where he's, he's just going over this old system. And he just wants to get through it real quick. And he didn't go in, in, in any kind of um, detail because he just wants to point, he wants to bring out the big point, okay? So, verse 5. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. There you go. You can speak in detail about these things. I mean, you know. <laughs> You can go for weeks talking about the tabernacle. These preparations having thus been made, the priest, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So they're going into the holy place. They're tending the lampstand. They're filling the oil in. They're trimming the wicks. They're changing out the unleavened bread and the show bread. They're putting the incense on the altar of incense. They're pouring out the, the drink offering. They're doing all these things me, in the holy place. But, into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and look at this, for the unintentional sins of the people. Are you okay? Yeah. Alright. So, the blood that the high priest takes in to the holy of holies, happens on what day? Saturday. Yom Kippur. Yeah, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Saturday. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, what That's day? Good. The Sabbath? Yes, it is. Technically, it is a Sabbath. <laughs> you're, you're right. It is you're right. It is a Sabbath. <laughs> on the Day of Atonement, the only day. <laughs> one time a year, he takes blood and he puts it on the mercy seat. What kind of sins is he atoning for? Uh, sins that we did, did by mistake. That we, we didn't do on purpose. It says unintentional sins. Unintentional yeah. sins. That's what he said before. Yeah, <laughs> unintentional sins. So, yeah, like, so when we do something wrong, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> Alright. I'm just, like, testing that. that. Hang on to that thought for a okay. second. We're in trouble, I think. Unintentional <laughs> sins. Remember, we have a better high priest who mediates a better covenant that has better promises. For the life of me, I can never figure out why any blood-bought child of God, born again, is just bound and determined to become kosher. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, and by that, I mean, like, you know, hey, I have to take on all the cultural accoutrements and become 
culturally Jewish to really be Christian. Uh, and I have to do the law because it's forever. There's a problem. Because the law isn't just the Ten Commandments, and it's not just the feasts. And by the way, if you want to do the feast right, at least three of them, you've got to go somewhere where that structure exists. The Ark of the Covenant, the brazen altar, the holy place, and you've got to be slicing some throats and spilling some blood. And without all that, it's a remembrance, but it's not... It's not being observant in the, in the way that keeping the law would be observant. If you're keeping the law, you're keeping the law. And the law is to kill animals, take their blood to atone for sins you did in ignorance, unintentionally. I mean, if you're just a brazen sinner, that blood is no good for you. That's sobering. Unintentional sins. But we're all sinners. The King James, yes we are. See, that's, that's kind of what stinks about that old covenant. It can't go all the way. You can't get into the Holy of Holies. You know why? Because sin still sticks to me. You know why? Because the blood of goats and bulls can't get it done. It's just, it's just a facsimile. It's a share. It's just an analog. It's just a, yeah, for now. The King James translates that as errors. He, he sacrifices it for the errors of the people. But errors, I mean, the, 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 um, the English Standard Version does it right, by, I mean, gives the right meaning by unintended uh, or unintentional sins, but it's not the direct translation of the word itself. The Greek is agnoema, okay? Uh, noema, that G-N-O-E-M-A, that ah is, you know, the not knowledgeable. In other words, ignorant. Ignorant. So it's the plural of ignorance or to be ignorant. For the ignorances of the people. Okay? But the meaning of it is, that's, that's the, the literal you know, translation of it, but the meaning of it is sins of ignorance. Sins of ignorance. Okay? So the entire, I mean, the pinnacle of the sacrificial system was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and its atonement was for the unintentional sins of the people. Judaism, since the destruction of the temple, has transferred itself into a liturgical religion without blood. And, and depending on whether you're looking at ultra-Orthodox on one end of the scale, or um, Reformed on the other end of the scale, the Reformed theologians like like the liberal you know like the liberal Christian yes. theologians who say well all this all this Bible stuff is just made up by man and we're doing the best we can and it's a good you know moral story for how to live your life um, the the reformed reformed Judaism basically says yeah well you know God let us kill all the sheep as a as a compensation for or a carryover from when we were all pagans but we don't need all that blood right now we can pray and, and, and they have proof texts for it because of the Psalms and, and all these other kinds of things, which God was directing toward, you know, the, this, the sacrifice of praise, the food of your lips, giving thanks to His name, okay? okay. Alright, but without blood, there's no remission of sins. Sins of ignorance. Numbers 15, verse 28, out of the English Standard. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him, he shall be forgiven. 
Who's going to be forgiven? The person who makes a mistake and he sins unintentionally. I didn't know there was a grave there. I became ceremonially unclean. Um, you know, I'm sorry. I, uh, I was cutting wood and the axe head fell off and it killed that guy. I, it's a mistake. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't murder him, but I'm guilty of manslaughter. Now I've got to go to a special city and hang out until the high priest dies, but I can, I can kill a sheep and, and if this family doesn't find me and kill me, I'm good. Right? Okay. <clears throat> so, the two primary offerings that dealt with this were the sin and guilt offering. The guilt offering is translated in the King James as the trespass offering. So when you call them sin and trespass, you, 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 you know, you sometimes get this, this uh, um, opinion, for lack of a better word, you know, that sin is for, um, you know, the sin offering is for sins of omission, and the trespass for sins of commission and these kinds of things. Anyhow, they're really hard to untangle, but basically um, the guilt offering, what makes the guilt offering different than the sin offering is reparations are made. Um, if, if you've kept back something, you've got to pay 20% more. If you haven't offered your tithe in the correct way, then it's you know 20% on top of whatever the tithe was. There's there's a restitution clause. It, it it almost not almost I mean kind of touches on tort law, okay? So that's and that's highly reductionist. There's a lot more information on that sin and guilt, with rare exception, and the exceptions meaning there are mitigating circumstances that make this allowable as an unintentional, even though it looks very intentional. But all this other stuff is around it, so okay, it kind of looks unintentional. It can fall underneath the guilt offering. There is no provision made for intentional sins in the Old Covenant. Numbers 15, verse 29. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, and that, and, and that reference is an idiom that means they're shaking their fist at God. Yeah, I don't care what Jehovah thinks. I'm not doing it anyway. Doing it with a high hand, right? In rebellion. Whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. The next thing that happens in Numbers is some kid goes out and collects sticks on the Sabbath day and the congregation take him out. Moses has a chat with God. They come back, they go get this kid, and they stone him to death. There was no sheep slaughtered. There was no atonement offered. Sabbath law had been put down. This one went out and worked right there in, in, in front of every God and everybody. And he got executed. The wages of sin is death. Now, Kurtz, who was the guy who been reading the past couple days, um, I think he's 19th century German theologian. Anyhow, I may have the dates wrong. He's another one of these guys that when he quotes Hebrew, he writes in Hebrew. He throws Latin in. He expects you to understand it. 
you know. Mm -hmm. So I read the English words, okay? <laughs> but he brings up this thing of David, you know? You know, what about David? I mean, how can you call that unintentional? How do you call that a mistake? Or, you know, and then he, he uh, my paraphrase, you know, some, some of the other theologians of his time that he's arguing with, with like uh, Kyle and some of the other guys, and, you know, you, you can't call that one a heat in the moment. Now, so the only reason why nobody executed David, because what he did was a capital crime, was because no one was in authority to touch the Lord's anointed. So he was left for God to deal with. Now, he paid a price, but God had mercy on him, right? So, no atonement for intentional sins in the Levitical system. No atonement for intentional sins in the Levitical system. Now, see if I can find this verse. And we'll get to this later, Lord willing, not tonight. But, Hebrews chapter 10. Understanding this, understanding this, this high-hand thing, okay, that I'm just going to rebel against God and do my own will anyway, and, you know, that's what's going to happen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking up for the uh, I'm sorry, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. This is what we're talking about. This, uh, this high hand breach of command under Moses had to have two to three witnesses. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall everything be established. No capital punishment without two or three people agreeing. Remember when they, when they brought Jesus into judgment, they couldn't find two witnesses to agree to condemn him to death. You know, until finally they found two perjurers who got their story straight, and boom, right? Okay? So, look at this. For if we sin willfully, Hebrews 10, verse 26, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking, <coughs> a certain fearful looking for, the, for of judgment and fire indignation which shall devour the adversaries, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye? Shall, be, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those are some of the most sobering words in Hebrews. But if a saint, someone who has confessed Christ as Lord, has been cleansed of his sin, and the Holy Spirit is abiding in their heart, 
and they say, you know what? Forget the new covenant. Forget Jesus. Forget His blood. I'm going to do it anyway. How's He going to get clean? He's rejected the only sacrifice available. And if that person goes on in that rejection of the only sacrifice available, all that's left is a fearful expectation of the wrath and judgment of God on that individual for that action. So even for the Christian, to die in your sin is a horrible thing. Your sin's paid for. You can take a blood bath any minute of the day. But you will stand before your Maker and you will be judged for everything you've done in your body, both good and bad. There is a baptism of fire awaiting the saint. And whatever tender you left on yourself gets burned. Any wood, any hay, any stubble. Okay? So, there's, there's, a, there's a live fire exercise of this. Peter asked Ananias and Sapphira, why has Satan... Let's read it. Acts chapter 5. Verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is in a, you know, there's, there's superabundant giving. The church of Jesus Christ is, is becoming minimalist. They're divesting of everything except their basic needs. They're selling it, and then they're, they are giving of that for the, for the work of the ministry. Okay? So these, this couple says, hmm, look at all those people getting all that praise, getting all that slap on the back. Let's go. So they sell one house, they keep back some of the money, and then they show up and say, okay, we sold the house, here's all the money. Look at us, aren't we good? But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? The heart. The heart is the Holy of Holies of man. That's the spirit of man. Well, who's living there in Ananias? The Holy Spirit. Well, what did Ananias do? He let Satan into the Holy Spirit's Holy of Holies to lie to the Holy Spirit. Uh-uh. No, I don't think I'll let you sin that bad. See, I bought that spirit. No, you're dead. And that's what happened. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? There's no need for the obfuscation. There's no need for the lie. It was all yours. You could have kept it. You could have taken it. But you, you came here and said you gave it all. And you didn't. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? You haven't lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. That was it. Boom. Okay? So uh, this is, I mean, this is live fire exercise, right? So God has taken up habitation in your heart. If you ever get to the place where, where you think that the blood of Jesus Christ is just some common human thing, something happened 2,000 years ago, doesn't amount to a hill of beans, and I'm going to do what I want, there's nothing left for you. There's nothing left for anybody. Jesus is all there is. Right? So as sobering as those words are, if you know Jesus is all there is, 
and you retain to the preciousness of that blood, and you continue to be washed in the blood when you do sin, then you don't have this fearful expectation of judgment. Right? So there was no atonement for intentional sins in the Levitical system. By this, by what? This, this architecture, the holy place and the holy of holies, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. The entire point, the lesson, the symbolism, not the entire point, but a major point of this whole thing was, here's this entire system. God's in the center of the camp. You're worshiping God in the center of the camp. You have this holy place where you can get close to God, but you know what? You can't get to Him. So I'm going to let you live with this system for millennia that tells you I am not accessible. The cherubim and the flaming sword is still out there. Aaron's kids found that out. They went beyond the veil and the flaming sword came out and charred them. They had to carry them out there dead. Right? We have a better covenant. We have better promises. This is the old covenant which is symbolic of the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The blood of Christ can, but these sacrifices, this process can't. The blood of animals cannot do it. Can't, can't make it. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Praise God. The Reformation, the time of Reformation, wasn't in the 16th century. Okay? The real Reformation, I mean, okay, we had a Reformation. I'm not, I'm not denigrating that. Martin Luther, good thing, okay? Alright, kudos. But, the real Reformation? Christ. The New Covenant. The time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared. That's verse 11. Christ appeared. So as sobering as all these words are, Verse 11 comes with one of the most hopeful words in the Bible. B-U-T. But. <laughs> but when Christ appeared as high priest. Right? Um, verse 11. I'll have to read it out of the King James because I didn't print it out. But that's where, Lord willing, we're heading next. Uh, but not tonight. Hebrews 9-11. But when Christ being come in high priest of good things to come, of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, the King James says, not of this building. The literal is, not of this creation. The tabernacle he is in is not of this creation. This heavens and earth that we know that true sanctuary predates it. So, that's where we go next. Amen. That's a lot to think about.